I would assume uh, most of us know Michelangelo, the Italian architect, sculptor, and painter. I imagine that uh, many of us know that he sculpted uh, the statue David, uh, probably one of the greatest works of art in the world. But I imagine that few of us know that it was, uh, it was taken from a stone uh, that had been rejected by Donatello, another great Italian sculptor, because it had too many imperfections and flaws in it. And yet when Michelangelo saw that stone with its imperfections, he saw something great. And after about two years, in 1504, when the drape around it was dropped, uh, people were astonished at its beauty, even Leonardo da Vinci, astonished at its beauty, that he could take something, create something so glorious out of something so imperfect, God takes sinners, broken people, and he draws out of them great and glorious things. God is is about taking the imperfections and the brokenness of who we are and bringing us to a position where we image his very own son. God is able to do this through Christ. We've already seen Jesus exercise this authority over uh, sickness. He's overcome sickness with a word. We've seen him overrule the seas with a word. We've seen him overthrow darkness with a word. Now he's going to overwhelm us with the grace that he can give to us to take us broken, needy, so insecure people and to move us to a position of greater and greater glory. And we're going to see it all in Matthew's own testimony. Matthew kind of, as the writer, just puts this abbreviated conversion story in his gospel for us to show us this is what Jesus Christ does. This is how he saves. This is how he changes us. Really, this is how he fills his kingdom. Remember now, the whole gospel of Matthew is about a king advancing a kingdom. And we've seen him exert authority in every realm possible. Now he exerts authority over salvation and draws men into his kingdom, men and women into his kingdom. And he's showing us how he does it through his own conversion. You're going to see a dynamic call that Jesus calls Matthew, sovereign over the call. You're going to see the controversy that comes up. There's a great controversy surrounding salvation and how God has chosen to save. And there you're going to see a celebration that I pray we would mirror more and more as we begin to understand the nature of all that Jesus Christ has called us from and called us to. So turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 9. We'll read verses 9 through 17. 9 through 17. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy. Not sacrifice. For I came to call, 
For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Okay, so we're continuing to see Jesus' ministry in Capernaum. And so he's left the paralytic, he's passing by, and he sees Matthew, a tax collector. Now we're going to see this call is really the beginning of faith. It's really conversion. This call from Jesus is into the kingdom of God. And look who he chooses to call, Matthew. Now, a tax collector, you guys know kind of what that means. You have an understanding about the nature of tax collectors not being a great thing. But let me explain a little more. I want to try to help draw you into getting to a place where we're a little closer to really understanding the radical nature of this call. So he's walking, sees a tax booth. Tax booths were set along trade routes. So if you brought your goods along this route or if it came across the lake, you would be taxed. They were like custom duty agents, and they would tax you on, uh, on, on the number of wheels that you have. They had an axle tax. Of course, they would tax your goods. They had all kinds of taxes. See, what the Roman government would do, the Roman government is ruling over Israel, and they're collecting taxes from the people to fund their war machine. They auction off the right to rule, or the right to collect taxes, to a man. And this man will pay an agreed sum, but then he can go out and has the right, and he has the protection, by the way, of the Roman government to charge taxes, and he can charge pretty much anything he wants. It was was really, given the poor communication, the lax uh, record-keeping, and just the natural greed that is in each one of us, they really, uh, it was a corrupt system, and they would charge They would charge exorbitant rates. They would charge as much as they want. They would give the portion back to the Roman government. They would keep for themselves the overage. So it just bred overcharging. So these these men who exercised this right of collecting taxes were hated. They were hated. They were hated by the nationalists who couldn't believe that a Jew would collect taxes from other Jews and give it to the Romans. They were hated because of their morality. They were thieves. They were stealing people's money. They were hated. Then they'd live lavishly, throwing wild parties, living above everyone else with everyone else's money. I mean, they were cast out of the people of Israel. They were looked at with disdain. They were held with contempt. They were seen as, they were seen as adulterers and murderers and even Gentiles. I mean, they were a wicked bunch of people. I mean, they were, they were beneath the scum, so find scum and go beneath it. And, and they were beyond, the people thought they were beyond God's mercy. And even worse, they were beyond God's interest. God had no concern for that. I, I don't even have a people group, I don't have a station in life that I could give you as an example to kind of hold them up and say, they're like these. They're that bad. They were that bad. And yet Jesus comes and says, Matthew, follow me. Jesus calls a man such as this to enter the kingdom, to follow him with his life. And what does Matthew do? Well, he gets up and follows. 
He, there's, there's, no, there's no questioning, there's no bickering, there's no bartering. He just follows. He leaves everything. Luke's gospel tells us he left everything. Money, position, power. There was no turning back for him. He wasn't going to be able to get his job back if the thing didn't work out with Jesus. He, nobody would hire him. He was a crook. Nobody would give him a job. It was unbelievable. He left everything. But he also left his thievery, his extortion, his deceit. His corruption, he left it all. It's amazing. Jesus, with the word, can calm the seas. With the word, can cast out demons. With the word, can call a man in darkness and bring him to light. And Matthew followed him. And incidentally, Matthew followed him the whole way. It's probably another 30 or 40 years later, after writing this gospel, that he died. Tradition holds probably around Ethiopia. He died at the end of a of a halberd, which was, a, which was basically a large spear with an axe on the end of it. He suffered and he died in faith. He never stopped following. He always followed faithfully. Well, what we see here is when you look at salvation and how do I enter the kingdom of God, how are Christians made, if you will? How does God fill his kingdom with sinners? Well, the first thing you see is the call. And the call is of Christ. Christ makes the call. You know, now Matthew probably heard about Jesus, perhaps had even seen Jesus, perhaps had even seen and heard of his miracles. But what is unique is that to the word of Jesus saying, follow me, he comes. It's teaching us an important principle here that, that the call of God rests in God through his son Jesus. You know, if you think about it, Capernaum saw all kinds of miracles. I mean, in fact, here's what Jesus says. Later, in Matthew 11, we'll read this. Jesus says, I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. What's that mean? He did so much in Capernaum. And so many didn't turn. But Matthew followed. Why? Because Jesus called him. Your salvation rests and begins with the voice of Christ. Jesus said himself, you did not choose me. I chose you. In fact, he's going to say later in chapter 11, he's going to say, all things have been handed over to me by my father. And no one knows the son except the father. And no one knows the father except the son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. It's incredible. Do you realize that if you call yourself a Christian and rest in the mercy of God, that that work was done in you, you were acted upon. In fact, Martin Luther, the great reformer, says these words. He says, if I know not the distinction between our working and the power of God, I know not God himself. Hence, I cannot worship him, praise him, or serve him. For I shall never know how much I ought to ascribe to myself and to God. No, the mercy of God alone does all things, and our own will does nothing. It's not active, but rather acted upon. I'm speaking in relationship to salvation now. And so it must be. Otherwise, the whole is not ascribed unto God. See, see Jesus Christ calling you by his own glory and for his own purpose ascribes the greatest glory to God. 
It engenders, it engenders humility in us. It engenders worship in us. How can we truly worship if we're participating with him in the call? I mean, it's incredible to think that we ought to be the most humble of people because we were the sinner. We were just called for his own purposes, for his own glory. That's what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. He says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, <clears throat> so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So the first thing we see about our salvation is it originates in God. This call to us. But I want to be clear. There is a response. I mean, Matthew did follow. He says, follow me. That there is this response. Our priorities change. Becoming a Christian, heeding the call of God, is always evidenced in a response. There's worship. There's sacrifice. There's repentance. There's a pursuing of, there's taking the words of Jesus and molding your life around his words. There's a fork in the road for you. When you hear the call of God, you have to follow. There's a fork. Jesus doesn't lessen it for us. He doesn't, he doesn't ease this call of discipleship. You follow me. You follow me. Everything else in life now is way behind me. That's the call to discipleship. That's what Matthew walked out. Now, I want to say this to you, that it always doesn't look like Matthew's call. I mean, he called Matthew, he got up and came. But Nicodemus, it looks a little different. It was over time, interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus. The woman at the well, it was a little different in that case. So the calls are often very different, but they end up in the same place, which is he is preeminent in our life, and we're following him. He's preeminent. See, to say that I've been called of God is not simply rooted in what you believe. It's not rooted in the high level of theology that you have. It's revealed in how you follow. People can believe and not be called. We see that with Capernaum. I mean, they believed in the power of Jesus. They saw the miracles, but they didn't follow. And we see the Pharisees. They believe. I mean, they have a right theology, but they didn't follow. Jonathan Edwards, as you know, um, is a great pastor up in New England and Massachusetts in the uh, 18th century. And here's what he wrote. Very simple, but very helpful. He says, there may be several good evidences that a tree is a fig tree, but the highest and the most proper evidence of it is that it actually bears figs. It just bears figs. If you see a fig, you pretty much are certain it's a fig tree. If you follow Jesus consistently, perseveringly, lovingly, joyfully, then you've been called. People that haven't been called don't follow Jesus. Ah, they may believe in him. They may throw him a couple bones periodically about what a moral teacher he was, but they don't follow him. Now, let me ask you, do you follow him? I, I mean, do you understand the nature of this call? Are you humbled to call yourself a Christian? Do you recognize that it was not of you? He acted upon you with grace, this unmeasured grace. Does that humble you? Does it cause you to be thankful? I mean, do you think about why did he call me? Why did he draw me from the pit that I was in? 
Are, are you overwhelmed by His grace sometimes? Do you marvel and just say, I cannot believe that I love Him and want to follow Him? Do, do you follow Him when you look at your life? and when you, when you assess your marriage two years ago, are you different? Are, are you quicker to repent to your spouse when you sin against them? Do you have a, a greater hunger to be holy? Do you repent before God? Do you look at your life? Uh, do you have a greater love for the word? Are, are, you, are you longing in greater measure for him to come back and take you to be with him so that you'll become like him? Are you looking forward to that day? I, is your life mirroring more of a following? Now, I don't mean to say at all that the Christian is perfect. You know I would never espouse that. The Christian is never perfect, but the Christian is repentant. So where we look at our lives and we see it go crosswise with Jesus, then we don't fall into despair. We do fall to our knees. We confess our sins. We repent and we thank him for the gospel that assures to us we are his forever. So this is the mark if you've been called. Just because you may believe certain things doesn't mean you're called. You know that you're called. Now, I don't want to diminish theology, and I surely don't want to diminish doctrine in, in our church. I want to uphold it rightly and as significant. But the demons believe and even tremble, but they're not following. So have you been called? Do you follow? That's the first thing we see in Matthew. He followed. He followed to the end of a halberd. He followed forever. But then secondly, this following did create a controversy in his life, and it will often in our lives. Look back with me in the text in verse, in verse 10. He's reclining at the table, and he sees, and he's with these tax collectors. So here's what Matthew t- Matthew shows us that the grace of God is not in vain, because he, he is saved, he is following Jesus, and so he invites all of his friends. Now, of course, when you're that sort of ilk, your friends are going to tend to be of the same nature. And so this is a real who's who list, I'm telling you. This is tax collectors and sinners. The word for sinners, the word sinners is kind of a stock term. It includes all those people who are ignoring the laws of God. Now, they may be ignoring the laws of God because they're fed up with religion. They may be ignoring the laws of God because they're just tired of religion. But either way, they're the adulterers, they're the fornicators, they're the cheaters, the thieves, the drunkards. They're kind of the dregs of society here. That's what Matthew wants us to see. And I love the humility of Matthew. Matthew doesn't sugarcoat it. You know, Matthew's a very humble gospel writer. He's the only gospel writer that doesn't include one word that he spoke. He's the only gospel writer that that he's not putting himself in a better light. He's saying, yeah, this is who I was. This is what I've been saved from. He doesn't even reference the fact that it was his house that it was in, which it was. And so he has this party going, and all these who's who are there. I mean, it's a real group, and who's there in the midst of them? Jesus. Why? Because Matthew's throwing a party for him. He's thankful. He's saying, this is the man who called me to follow him. This is the Messiah. I'm going to follow him. And, And so then the Pharisees, of course, come up, and they see this. This is kind of a spark, if you will that's going to set a blaze that we're going to really hear about in chapters 10 and 11, and it's going to ultimately lead to his death. But, but, but the spark is the Pharisees come up, and they question, what's your... They don't even have the decency to speak to Jesus, but they pick on his disciples. And, and, and he says, and they ask, so why is he eating with these people? Now, Pharisees, the word itself means separated. 
And, and a Pharisee would separate from the sinners and the impure. Now, before we throw them under the bus, because we tend to want to do that with the Pharisees, just chuck them under the train, I don't want to do that just yet. Uh, the Pharisees uh, understood that purity before God came from uh, not being contaminated by the sin of the world. There was a contamination issue for them. That, that, that if, you would, if you would hang around the sinner, then there's a possibility you'll be contaminated by them. You, you know how that works. If you're with a sick person, you, you know, their sickness can often come to you. It, it doesn't work the other way around, right? You, you can't put a healthy person in the midst of sick, and he makes them healthy. It generally just goes that the impure uh, ruin the clean. The clean can't change the impure. Now, before we throw them under the train, remember that... that um, God did establish dietary laws, and God established dietary laws so that the Jews would not, would not eat with and fellowship with the pagan nations around them. Why? Because their influence on the nation of Israel would work against their loving God and being faithful. So, so they have a, a precedent that they're standing on right now. We kind of do the same thing, don't we? Say birds of a feather. I remember my dad saying that to me. One bad apple. One bad apple can ruin a bushel. I remember my dad as a kid uh, would have to go down every few days in the basement of his Ohio home and keep turning the apples and pull out the bad ones. Well, if you get a bad apple, it's going to ruin the rest of them. You don't want to lose all the apples, right? So you better just get rid of the one. And that's what these Pharisees did. They kind of established these classes of people. They didn't want to be contaminated. Now, theirs was driven by great self-righteousness, but, but they didn't want to be contaminated by them, so they drew classes of people. They're good, they're bad. They're virtuous, virtuous. They're non-virtuous. You know, they're, they're striving for God. They're ungodly. And they put classes of people in. And these Pharisees, I feel sorry for them. They missed it. They missed it. They were so close, but they missed it. Because they thought, well, if I'm compliant to the rules, then God's going to accept me. They didn't understand the nature of sin, the pervasive nature of sin. They didn't understand that you could be as sinful as a religious person as you could be as one who just has no restraint in their life. They had no idea about that. They just thought if we do the best that we can do, God will have to accept us. And folks, do you not hear that today? I mean, do you not, do you not find in your own life you separating people into classes? Ungodly, godly. You, you want to put these, these lines of demarcation around. They're in, they're out, they're in. This is what they wear, this is what they say, this is what they believe. They're in, they're out. We do it all the time. We do it in politics, we do it in morality, we do it in spirituality. We do it economically, we do it educationally, we put people in classes. Well, Jesus, in grace, rebukes them. And, and remember, a rebuke from Jesus is gracious. It's a warning. He could turn away from us and walk away, but he doesn't choose to do it. Look what he says. He says, when he heard it, he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And he says it in, in more clear terms. He says, I've come not to call the righteous but the sinners, Jesus gives a devastating blow to their argument and their understanding. He's saying, isn't it true? I mean, do doctors not go to the sick? If I've come to save sinners, shouldn't I be with the sinners? That's his call, right? In other words, when he said here, Jesus did not come to call the righteous. He's not saying the Pharisees are righteous. It's really important for you to know that. He's saying that the physician is for the, for the sick, not the healthy. He's not saying they're healthy. 
He's saying that the role of the Messiah is to come and to bind up the brokenhearted, to heal the sick, to, to forgive the sinner, to release the captive. That's what he's come to do. And he rebukes him by saying, go and learn. He uses this pharisaical formula. In other words, if the Pharisees, if you weren't intelligent enough to pick up their thought, they would say, go and learn what this means. Go, you need to be further taught, is what they're saying. Jesus says to the teachers, you don't know enough. Go and learn what it means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. In other words, Jesus has come to extend mercy. And, and this quote from Hosea 6.6, 6, the prophet was saying to the religious leadership, he, he says, not just had the religious, he was rebuking the religious leadership, not simply because they were ignorant of the social outcasts of the time, but that they didn't move toward them with grace, that they didn't move toward them with mercy, that they demanded this adherence to a strict set of man-made rules as a means of finding acceptance with God rather than appealing to God for mercy. They didn't understand that the very character of God was full mercy. They didn't understand Jesus was coming to make them clean. Isn't that what he did with a leper? Just, just a couple weeks back. Remember the leper said, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus said, what? I'm willing. And then what did he do? He touched him. He broke the law. Jesus, nobody, nobody was supposed to touch a leper or it would make them unclean. But Jesus can't be made unclean. He has no sin. He's the Messiah. He's sent from God. Jesus cleans us. And so he grabs the, and, and the word, remember the Greek word is he grabs the leper. He doesn't just touch him with his little finger. He grabs him. Be clean. And he was clean because Jesus cleans us. It's amazing. He cleans us of our sin, of our shame, of our guilt. He cleans us of our lusts, of our angers, of our bitterness. He cleans us. This, this controversy with the Pharisees reveals a couple, a couple things that I want you to know. One's good, one's bad. One's good is that do you realize that sinners are targeted for the kingdom. Those who understand they're sinners, they're targeted for the kingdom. Do you get that? Do you realize that God has sent the Son to clean you from your anger and your bigotry, your bitterness, your rancor, your gossip, all your brokenness? Do you, do you realize he's come to clean you? That too many within Christendom will speak to me about the sins of their past as if they've never been forgiven. I know many of you struggle with that. You don't really know, have I been forgiven? It, it affects your worship. It diminishes your joy. It causes a distance to be between you and God. And do you realize what you're learning here is you are clean. That those who have been called are following by faith, you're clean. Absolutely clean. No matter what kind of sinner, you may have had an abortion. You may have been divorced. You may have committed adultery. You may have been a thief, and you have come, and Christ has called you, and you're following him. Do you realize that you're clean, absolutely clean? Folks, that should cause you to celebrate, as we're going to see in just a moment. Just like Matthew, do you see now why Matthew's throwing the big party? He's awful happy. He's awful happy because he's now clean. Look what Charles Spurgeon wrote about this. I love this. I, this guy is unbelievable, right? He's a London preacher in the 19th century. He says, the bridge of grace will bear your weight, brother. Thousands of big sinners have gone across that bridge. Yea, tens of thousands have gone over. 
I can hear their trampings now as they traverse the great arches of the Bridge of Salvation. They come by the thousands, by their myriads, ere since the day when Christ first entered his glory. They come, and yet never a stone has sprung in that mighty bridge. Some have been the chief of sinners, and some have come at the very last of their days, but the arch has never yielded beneath their weight. I will go with them, trusting to the same support. It will bear me over as it has for them. Isn't that amazing? That's why we rejoice. Now here's the bad news. The bad news is this text is a threat to the religious. That's the bender. It's a threat to the religious. I mean, if we're thinking that, that our compliance, our efforts, our strivings, if, if we're waiting for those to put us in good stead with God, we have a problem. See, the, the issue with the Pharisees is they didn't think they needed to be saved. Why? Because they had put themselves in the righteous category. All those other were sinners. And so it's a threat to us, the religious, that we don't think we need to be saved. We don't think we're like the tax collector. That is an eternally damning thought. That's the irony. There were no righteous. That's why Paul says in Romans 3, there's none righteous. No, not one. No one. Jesus came There wasn't anybody that has lived or is living or will live that doesn't sit in the category of sinners. You know, oftentimes when I get sick, Carol will want me to go to the doctor. But I tend to say, no, no, I'm fine. And then the hacking comes and the sneezing comes and it gets worse. And no, you know, you ought to go to the doctor. No, I think I'm getting better. I'm starting to feel a little bit better. And then it goes on for a week, and I finally go, and he says, you've got a sinus infection, now you've got bronchitis, and blah, blah, blah. And, and there's something, I don't know, in me that I just don't want to go to the doctor. But I would say, analogous to that is, many of us think we don't need a physician. We don't think we need to be saved. You've lived a good life. You've been moral. You've been better than just about everybody in your comparative analysis, that group you're better than they are, or you're at least as good as they are, or at least there's so many bad people that clearly, you know, God will tire of judgment until he gets to me, and we don't think we need him. It's a a threat to the religious. Jesus is a threat to the religious. I I love, I've quoted before, but J.C. Ryle, remember how he talked about the two men crucified with Jesus? J.C. Ryle was a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon and London preaching, Anglican bishop. And he said, there's two men crucified with Jesus. Uh, one, one saw Jesus, talked to Jesus, but rejected him. He goes, he's there so that no one of you would be presumptuous. Don't think that just because you have some idea about the things of God that you're going to be saved. The other one, though, the other one's there at the very end of his life. He's being crucified now because he was probably a murderer. He hadn't done anything good in his life, and yet he says, would you remember me? And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. And he's there so that nobody would be in despair. So the, those are the two warnings. There's, it's good news in this controversy, and it's a warning. Okay, so we get the call. Matthew is called to faith by a sovereign God, and he follows him faithfully. It brings him into controversy. But this controversy, for those who are called, it ought to move to celebration. Or joy. So we picked it up before when he was throwing the party. And, and they're all partying together. And they are rejoicing 
because he has been saved. He wants his friends to meet this Jesus who saved him. Now this, in the party, these disciples of John, remember John the Baptist, John the Baptist is in jail at this point. He's in prison. But his disciples are still gathering together. They're a little confused. They come up and they ask Jesus, why aren't you and your disciples fasting? And so, of course, Jesus answers his question with what? A question. And he says, can they fast? Can the guests of the bridegroom fast when the bridegroom is with them? Now listen, this is an interesting imagery. Jesus calls himself a bridegroom. God does the same in Isaiah, in Hosea, in Ezekiel, and Jeremiah. God's a bridegroom. So Jesus now calls himself the bridegroom, putting himself on par with God. And he says, hey, can they fast when they're with me? Now what's really interesting when he calls himself a bridegroom is it's giving us a clear indication that Jesus is calling us into a relationship with him But it's not a king to a servant. It's not simply a teacher to a pupil. It's a husband to a wife. I mean, think about it. I mean, Jesus is calling us into a relationship with him that's marked by what we would see as the intimacy and the love and the the joy and the protection that we should have within our spousal relationship. That's why he's celebrating. Jesus is calling us into this intimate relationship where our sins are forgiven and now we're embraced by God as a husband would embrace a wife. This is the idea of, of this new time and what he's getting at with this, you know, a patch of new cloth and, uh, and shrunk cloth and wine and old wineskins. What he's saying is here is Jesus says, I've come and there's a new age. I'm starting a new kingdom. This is a new, this is a new world that I'm beginning. My kingdom is advancing. It's different from the old kingdom. Now, let let me remind you, Jesus is not repudiating the Old Testament at all. He's simply saying, I've fulfilled the Old Testament. We already saw that in Matthew 5, 17. So Jesus is saying, I have fulfilled the Old Testament. I'm starting something new. It's bold. It's glorious. And it's a time of great celebration and joy. That's why they're not fasting. Because they're with me. And my kingdom that I'm establishing, is a, it's going to be a great celebration and joy. The reason he talks about this, this cloth is you can't take the old system of I'm going to try to obey the law and find my acceptance with God and believe in Jesus. You can't have them both. It's two different systems. They don't work together. You wouldn't, any seamstress knows, if you take new cloth and you sew it upon an old garment and then you wash the garment, what happens? The new cloth shrinks naturally, and the old garment doesn't have that shrinkage ability anymore, and so it tears and ruins the garment and the patch. Or if you put wine, new wine, new wine has to ferment. Gases are emitted. It's expanding. If you put new wine in an old skin that has already been stretched, then when the fermentation process begins happening, the second time for the old bag, it doesn't have the elasticity, and it breaks. By the way, this is incidentally an argument for why uh, wine did have alcoholic content. Many times you hear preachers say, Jesus made all that wine because it didn't have alcohol in it. It's kind of an amped up grape juice. Uh, I don't know why then he was worried about the fermentation process, because the fermentation process makes it alcoholic, so it has alcohol in it. But the point of it is that you can't introduce this gospel of grace, this kingdom that Jesus is bringing, with an old mode of trying to appeal to God and find acceptance with him. It's, 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 it's a time of great joy. But you'll notice in the text there's something interesting. He says here, he says, but when the bridegroom is taken away, 
from them. Now, this is why we rejoice. We rejoice because Jesus has come to establish a kingdom to which you, the Christian, have been called into. But the kingdom has been established by his coming, but by his being taken away. See, when he says taken away, he's referencing Isaiah 53.8. Listen to 53.8. Isaiah says this. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He was taken away by oppression and judgment. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. In other words, Jesus, he puts in this subtle line, but when the bridegroom's taken away, which any good student of the Old Testament would have known it's speaking to the Messiah that would die. He was taken away with our sins being placed upon him, bearing the wrath of God so that we would be sheltered under the mercy seat, protected from God's judgment and wrath. This is the gospel. In other words, the reason we are celebrating is we've been called into a kingdom that has been established by the Messiah who has come among us but has died for us and has been raised again. This is why our celebration, that death has been defeated, sin has been crushed. This is why we celebrate. That's why Matthew is celebrating. He knew that his sins were washed away. He would be accepted by God now, not according to some compliance of law, but because he was in Christ. Again, this is a threat to the religious. I I would just say to you, I I know that within every church there are those of us, and I tend to be kind of an older brother type. And what I mean by that is I tend to find, and I slip into this on a regular basis, I tend to slip into this idea that the more I do, the more God loves me. And and I tend to slip into this works. Yeah, I'm saved by grace but I keep being saved by my works. That's what happens to me. There's a tendency to think that if I really prayed a lot on Saturday, that you're going to be more moved on Sunday. There's this quid pro quo effect that I often slip into, and I I repent of it because I don't believe it, and I repent of it. The religious in this case, if you are looking at who you are and what you've done and how you've behaved, if you have more strict rules than other people do, if you live more tight lives than other people do, and you find a confidence in that, let me warn you, your faith is very fragile. Here's what's going to happen. Your faith is going to be fragile, and you're going to live day to day, always wondering how you stand with God. You'll never rest in the full acceptance of God. Number one. Number two, you'll start pulling away from people. You'll start worrying about contamination. You will. You'll draw back from people. You'll move into separatism. You'll move back because you don't want their influencing, their influences affecting you or your children. You don't want to be tainted by them. You want to walk straight and narrow. You want to be found faithful. Let me tell you, you're resting on yourself. There's a warning. That's not the Christian way. Now, the Christian is rejoicing because he's been called. He's been called by God, and God's call was unilateral. It was moved to you out of his mercy and grace. And so if he has saved you based upon nothing you've done, that's why Matthew was chosen, he had done nothing, then what you do doesn't cause it to fall in jeopardy. Now, now let me say this, that the celebration is being rooted in the fact you've been called. You're in a kingdom now. I want you to realize that we as people, as Christians, if we are called, we are rejoicing. And you do know that, that Jesus said in Luke 15, that the heavens rejoice over a sinner that repents. Have you rejoiced 
I mean, are you, do you rejoice over being called? You know, I, I think about China. China in the last 50 years has had this explosion of growth in the church. Uh, they say upwards of 70 to 80 million people. Let's play it safe and say 10. 10 million people have truly come to faith in Christ. Can you imagine all the rejoicing in heaven over those 10 million people? What would heaven be like as those people just come to faith, as sinners repent, as sinners choose to follow Jesus Christ? Can you imagine the rejoicing in heaven? And that happened over you. When you converted, when you repented, heaven rejoiced. Do we not want to rejoice with heaven? I mean, I, I think we ought to be the happiest people. The world seems like they're, the, they're having the best fun and yet I often wonder, why aren't we rejoicing with greater and greater joy over being forgiven and being part of a great kingdom? I want to encourage you to consider that. But for the Christian here, you're not just rejoicing because you've been called. You are following. So when I say to you that you haven't been saved upon anything you've done, doesn't mean we don't strive for holiness. It doesn't mean that we're not working to be godly. But we're, we're being fueled by the joy that God has already embraced us. In other words, holiness is not seeking to earn God's favor, but our pursuit of holiness is in response to God's favor. We're satisfied in him now. And so we want to live in a manner and in a way that would bring him honor. Listen to what Peter says. I'm going to read you a passage here, a couple verses long, but in 2 Peter 1 he says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and goodness, by which he has granted to us his precious and great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of his divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of the sinful desire. So in verses 3, 4, and 5, Peter's just saying, look what God's done for you. He called you by his own glory and goodness. He's made you partakers of his divine nature. So that's all good news, right? I've got all of that. But then look at what he says in the very next verse. He says, for this reason, because you've been saved, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus. So it's a both and. Rejoice over all that God's done, but then pursue mightily out of the overflow of your joy to be holy, to be righteous. That's what the Christian does. That's what Matthew did all the way to the end of a halberd. And then the last thing the Christian does, we just don't rejoice or we just don't pursue holiness, but we also throw ourselves among the sinful. In other words, we don't live with distinctions anymore. We're all sinners. We all need the grace of God. And if you have received the grace of God, then where in your life is your engagement with the world? Now, I'm not saying, I'm not saying embrace the practices of the world, of course. I'm not saying work to condone them, but to be with them and to speak to them and allow the cleanliness of the Spirit of God that he has done that work in you to clean them. This is what we're going to see at the end of chapter 9. He says, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he'll send laborers out into the field. That's you. That's me. We now bring, bring clean to them. We don't clean them, of course, but we are the mouthpieces of God declaring this gospel that cleaned Matthew. So look at the relationships that you have. Do you look at people in classes? Do you look at them in sections? 
You say, I've got to avoid this person? Why? Don't fear them. You have the Spirit of God dwelling within you. Be a light in a dark place. And th- this is, this is, the evangelism in the church was always to take place, predominantly speaking. I'm, I call for faith here, but, but evangelism for the church to grow was through the body, not necessarily on Sunday morning. Sunday morning is predominantly about, about equipping the saints to do the works of ministry. These are the works that you do. And greater works you will do than even Jesus said because he's gone to the Father. So you can have confidence. Ask whatever you wish. And it will be granted to you so that the Father might be glorified in the Son. Test him on that. Ask him, in the name of Jesus, give me boldness with my neighbors. Ask him, give me boldness in the office. God, give me opportunity to speak to your gospel to people. Ask him. He said you'll do greater works than he did. He said, I tell you the truth. The works that I do, greater works you will do still because I go to the Father. Well, let's pray and uh, we'll have a a time of prayer, a brief time of prayer. And uh, an elder will close us. Pray briefly, loudly, so we can join with you and others can as well. I'll start and the elder will close us. Father, thank you for your word and the grace you've given to us in Jesus. We are overwhelmed, Lord, that you have drawn us. We're all Matthews, really, and you've drawn us to yourself through the call that Christ has placed in our lives. Thank you for calling us. We know that there's nothing in us. We didn't merit it. We don't deserve it. What we deserve is wrath, and what you've given is mercy, because you are merciful. You are far more mercy. In fact, your mercy is so great that we fear you because your mercy is so great. Thank you.